Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly. Good music is what we want to hear. What do you mean, good music? It's what we dance to, what our children will dance to. And if you don't want to play it, then take your records and go home. You have a band, good or bad. It's a great band, it's a bad band, it's like pizza, baby. It's good no matter what, there's music in the air. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, we're going to talk about copyright law and plagiarism in popular music. And later on, it'll be Greg's turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time to welcome our newest affiliate. Yes, Greg, Oregon Public Broadcasting has added Sound Opinions, Portland, Eugene, Bend. For the benefit of new listeners, when a new station adds us, we like to play something from their neck of the woods to welcome them on board. And with Oregon, we could have gone any number of ways. I said, we got to go with the Kingsmen. I mean, it all starts with Louie Louie. Yeah. It all starts <laughs> with the There is no punk rock but for Louie Louie. That is Having true. been a huge hit in 1963 out of Portland. This group of, of no talent kind of drunken frat boys. And I <laughs> say that, I mean that as a compliment, right? You know, gets together and does this sloppy cover of uh, Richard Berry's uh, Louie Louie, takes out all of the Caribbean lilt and adds just snarling punk. They're stumbling all over the way. The drummer starts and he's not supposed to. They were managed by this guy named Ken Chase, who was the music director at a Portland radio station, KISN. So this is a little bit of, in the great Chicago tradition, inside uh, Grease and the Skids, yeah, right? right? right. No, what a surprise. The guy manages the band. He adds them to their radio station. Uh, but it takes off across the country from there, and, and well, it should have. The Kingsman and Louie Louie, one of the greatest songs in rock history, bar none, came from Portland. Welcome, Oregon Public Broadcasting. Welcome, Portland. Welcome, all of Oregon, to Sound Opinions. The lazy way they turn your head into a rest. Stop for the dead. 
That is Halfway Home from the latest album by TV on the Radio, the album that topped the latest Village Voice Passenger poll of the nation's music critics. Jim, you and I have been voting at various times in this poll for the last couple of decades. This poll has been around since the early 70s. It is widely regarded as the single best barometer, of, at least of what the nation's critics are thinking, is the best music in a particular year. It's amazing to compare the winners of the Village Voice poll against uh, what wins the Grammys that year. There's usually a huge disconnect. But TV on the radio, anointed as the best album of 2008, followed closely by Vampire Weekend, number three, Portishead, number four, Fleet Foxes, Erica Badu in the number five slot. I thought that was an interesting position for her. I don't think a lot of people initially recognized that album for, for being as great as it was. Yeah, you were made, one of the champions of made that Made my top earlier. ten, yeah. Lil Wayne at number six, Santa Gold at seven, Bon Iver at eight, Nick Cave and the Bad Seas, which you and I both picked as our top album mm-hmm. of 2008, uh, came in at number nine, and Kanye West with 808s and Heartbreak at number ten. You know, looking at this list, Jim, people are going to look back on this list and they're going to look at that number two pick and they're going to say, Vampire Weekend? Yeah, yeah. Was the second best album of 2008? Well, listen, the nation's (laughs) rock critics, there was 579 of them that voted this time around. Now, that's down. A couple of years ago, it was was more than 800. They tend to get it better than the Grammys, but that doesn't mean they get it right. Since Robert Criscow, the dean of American rock critics, stopped running the peasant job poll, I just don't think it's, it's had the same authority anymore. I don't think it's been run as well. You know, there's nobody's opinion that matters but sound opinions in my <laughs> and, and and only one half of uh, sound opinions. So I, you know, but whatever. It's an interesting. It's a better list than the Grammys. Yeah, it, it is an interesting list. Although look, looking at the uh, the top songs, the top singles of the year, number one and number two, both factoring heavily in this year's Grammy nominations. MIA's Paper Planes running away yeah. with the number one single of the year. And at number two, Estelle with Kanye West with American Boy also got nominated in a couple mm-hmm. of big categories. So there's a little bit of closure here between what's going on in uh, the Grammys and what's going on in the Paz and Jop poll. You know, Greg, when you think about the treasures that are housed in the White House, the executive mansion where the president lives, some of the greatest art that our country's produced, and, and a great library, apparently, well, I'm not so hot about having John Denver's Rocky Mountain High there. Apparently, in the waning days of the Nixon administration, according to a new article in Rolling Stone, the Recording Industry Association of America, the trade group that represents all the major labels, you know them, they sue their customers all the time, uh, they got together and decided that in addition to uh, you know art and, and literature, there should be a collection of recorded sound in the White House. And they gave some 2,000 albums, vinyl LPs, to the Nixon administration. It was great stuff, like Pat Boone and the Carpenters and John Denver. 
A couple of years later, when the Carter administration was coming in, there was a commission put together by Bob Blumenthal. He was a Boston music critic. It included uh, some folks like Paul Nelson, uh, you know, a good friend of mine, the late critic uh, at Rolling Stone at the time. And they, they put together an update, you know, vinyl albums that the hipper Carter administration, you know, Jimmy was famously a Dylan fan, that they ought to have in their collection. This is great stuff. Apparently... Virgin vinyl pressings adorned with the presidential seal on the sleeves of stuff like Led Zeppelin IV and uh, Let It Bleed by the Rolling Stones. There's punk rock. There's the Ramones, Rocket to Russia, and the Sex Pistols, never mind the Bullocks, which I'm sure Amy Carter really enjoyed. Uh, and, and also some obscure stuff. Captain Beefheart's Trout Mask Replica, okay? Flying Burrito Brothers. Just great stuff. Reagan comes in in the 80s. Apparently, uh, there's two schools of thought. Either Nancy was offended by some of the album covers, because I can't actually imagine her listening to Captain no, Beefheart. No, Or uh, they were just in the way. So this state-of-the-art sound system and these virgin vinyl albums, arguably, you know, the great rock record collection, are moved into the basement. And now there's talk of resurrecting it since President Obama is moving in. And I just think this is great. Now, now <laughs> you know, I mean, circa 1975, the greatest rock record collection ever on virgin vinyl. But it needs to be updated. So you and I, I think, ought to offer with all due humility and free of charge Mm -hmm. our services to come in and help our former state senator, U.S. senator, now President Obama update that record collection. Absolutely. All we need is two weeks in the White House, in the bunker where the listening room is. Right. And, you know, just two weeks with the record collection. We'll tell you what to keep. We'll tell you what to throw out. I want to check out to see how many of these records have actually been played and if there are any telltale signs that the gatefold sleeves have been opened and yeah, yeah, yeah. presents have been left inside there, you know. You never know. Billy might have, like, got some beer stains <laughs> on Billy, it. Billy Carter. Billy Carter, yeah. But absolutely, it's time for an update. And uh, with, as you said, very humbly offering our services to uh, President Obama to update that record collection. Ask not what you can do for your country. <laughs> Ask what your country can do for the vinyl collection. I used to rule the world. rise when I gave the word. Now when That is the single Viva La Vida by Coldplay was a big hit off their recent album, has also made some news, Greg, besides being nominated for a Grammy, is the subject of a lawsuit by the shredding metal guitarist Joe Satriani, who is claiming that Coldplay, the British mood rockers, ripped off his 2004 instrumental If I Could Fly for this single Viva La Vida. We see a lot of these cases in the news where it's almost always a lesser artist suing a well-known artist who happens to have a hit and saying, hey, you, that hit has been ripped off of my tune. It's rare that you see two bands of this stature. You know, love them or hate them, Satriani is an established artist. Coldplay are one of the biggest rock bands in the world today. There's a history of this throughout popular music. We thought, why not use this case to step back and take a look at this twisted topic of copyright infringement, of plagiarism in popular music. You're absolutely right, Jim. It is a morass out there of copyright law and how it has been interpreted from case to case over the last few decades. For a little bit of insight into the Satriani Coldplay case, we went to one of the leading experts in the country on copyright law, Charles Cronin. He's a visiting fellow at Yale Law School and manager of the Music Copyright Infringement Project at UCLA. Professor Cronin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, Let's dive right in. What is Satriani going to have to prove here to make his case against Coldplay? Well, in order to establish infringement, he'll first have to demonstrate that Coldplay actually copied. That's established either by direct evidence of uh, copying. For instance, 
this piece of Coldplay band member photocopying sheet music, um, <laughs> it would be pretty obvious. That if there was a video of the making of that album and there was a stack of Joe Satriani CDs sitting on the console, <laughs> right? Right, something, um, something practically that blatant. Um, however, that's virtually never the case. And so one has to prove copying or demonstrate copying indirectly, and that usually comes down to a question of access and how likely was it that Coldplay had access to the earlier work by Joe Satriani. Well, now, now though, that you know, the entire musical universe is at our fingertips through download, anybody has access to everything, right? Yes, by and large, that's true, particularly in this case, because uh, Joe Satriani is not an unknown garage musician. I would say the, uh, that aspect of this dispute shouldn't pose much of a problem for Joe Satriani. The much more complicated and interesting question is, even once you've established access, you then have to demonstrate that the defendant took uh, material part of the plaintiff's work. And by material part, that means something that was original and protectable in the plaintiff's work. If the case moves forward, that's going to be the the main uh, issue that the parties will need to examine much more closely. Well, well, Professor, uh, you know, you do an A-B test. I don't know if you have between Satriano's If I Could Fly and uh, Coldplay's Viva La Vida. my ears, they do sound pretty close <laughs> to being exactly alike. I mean, I don't know what your ears are telling you, but what's your, what's your interpretation of, uh, of Satriani's case here? I mean, does he have a case, and do you think he can win it? I would say that the scansion of the two, two melodies do bear a certain similarity. However, if you reduce those brief melodic ideas to their, uh, what, I, what I would call their melodic essence, what you end up with is really just a matter of a, literally a handful of notes that uh, bear a uh, similarity uh, to each other. And the melodies themselves are, I, th- I think, the, it's, it's essentially just a, a, like a two- or three-measure motif. The two works are um, fundamentally musically different. That the little melodic kernel that I've just been speaking about really is just sort of the springboard for his riffs and, and uh, improvisation on this, on this little motif. Whereas with the, the Coldplay number, the little melodic kernel is pretty much all there is to it. But uh, they're, they're fundamentally very different works to my ears um, and probably have a somewhat different audience as well. So in that respect, I would say that it would be, Joe Satriani would have a difficult time trying to establish that somehow the Coldplay number could be undermining the market for for his work. Well, Professor, I don't know if this is a legal argument, but as rock critics, Greg and I find it pretty hard to believe that the members of Coldplay and their producer Brian Eno sat around grooving on Joe Satriani's tasty licks. It just does not make sense. Right. Well, um, the fact that the Coldplay band members may not be sitting down and consciously listening to or paying attention to or following the, the musical 
career and, and output of Joe Satrani really isn't the question in terms of establishing access or influence. It's quite possible that because Joe Satriani is a well-known guitar player, that some members of the band or a member of the band or somebody associated with them may have unconsciously sort of picked up significant, musically significant and valuable expression by another performer. I think that I think I read somewhere a brief statement by Coldplay in response to the Satriani charge. It did sort of strike me as having an aura of truth about it and that uh, there was an expression of sort of perplexity about the very idea that they would they would have consciously taken from another's works, but that they respected Joe Satriani and thought he was a fine guitar player and that sort of thing. But, um, but that doesn't really matter, right? That's not really a defense, is it? No, it's not. Right, exactly. Even if they were able to successfully establish that they had no direct access or no particular contact with that work, that Joe Satriani could still make a colorable claim that there was unconscious copying. How does Coldplay get up in court and say, I have never in my life, and never would I, listen to a Joe Satriani CD? One of the most famous cases involving this uh, question of access actually took place in Chicago and involved the Bee Gees, Sally versus Gibb, an amateur musician in Chicago, came very close to succeeding in his infringement suit against the Bee Gees, despite this extremely attenuated showing of access. So he had this song called Let It End, and he was claiming that this little tune that nobody'd heard, uh, it never got out of Chicago, was ripped off by the Bee Gees for How Deep Is Your Love. That's right. Well, it's time, girl, that you should know. We love now, but as soon we'll go. And then you will be left alone to find all the answers on your own. And the jury sided with him. They did. <laughs> but it got but ultimately the Bee Gees won. They did because the judge entered what's called a JNOV, a judgment notwithstanding the verdict, which is highly unusual. Access was just so improbable that uh, this is simply an, uh, an unreasonable conclusion on the part of the jury. Well, you can see how the jury could do this. Here's this guy, Ron, from Chicago, right? There you go. He's never had any breaks. The Bee Gees have sold 79 billion records, right? Right. <laughs> well, Professor, we're going to have to wait and see how the verdict comes out for Coldplay and Joe Satriano, but we want to thank you for coming on Sound Opinions. I appreciate it. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, we're going to continue our discussion of the most famous musical lawsuits. And later on, Jim and I are going to review the new record from Power Trio, The Heartless Bastards. And the moment that you wonder
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis of the Sun-Times. He's Greg Cott of the Chicago Tribune. And we are talking about some of the great copyright infringement, a.k.a. plagiarism cases, in popular music history. Probably, Greg, the most famous centers around that song by the great George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. Everybody knows about this case, right? 1976, Bright Tunes Music versus Harris Song Music. George had written My Sweet Lord in 1970. A couple of years later, Ronald Mack, who wrote the song He's So Fine in back in 1962, his publishers sued Harrison, claiming he had ripped off, the former Beatle had ripped off the key melody of uh, He's So Fine for My Sweet Lord. You know, Harrison did not write music. One of the greatest musicians, obviously, in the history of rock and roll, mm. but but was not a very educated one, did not sit down and, and pen out his compositions, often worked with other songwriters, often improvised, both on the guitar and on his vocal melody. And that's how My Sweet Lord was written. This case is important, as uh, our earlier guest, Professor uh, Cronin, uh, indicated, because the judge went with something saying that, that George was guilty of, quote, subconsciously copying. <laughs> now, take, take for example, there's a phrase you say often. All's I know is, right? You just say it all the time. You probably aren't even aware you say it. Suppose I write an article and I just lead with, all's I know is, right? Mm-hmm. Am I copying you intentionally? Am I plagiarizing you? Or am I just so used to hearing it that it's in the air and does it really matter anyway? I mean, I don't think you wrote that phrase. Somebody wrote it long ago. That's the core of many of these cases in popular music, is that there are only so many ways to arrange these notes. But George was held guilty in that famous case and had to pay $587,000. Given what he'd made with the Beatles, that was probably six months' interest on what he had in the bank. But, you know, I think it's worth going back and listening to the Chiffon song, He's So Fine, and the Harrison song. And we'll see, you know, a lot of the court testimony came down to a grace note. They were saying, yeah, Mm -hmm. you know, some of these notes were similar, but the way that one little grace pickup note, a little flourish, that was where Harrison was guilty of the subconscious plagiarism. I don't know. Let's take a Chiffons, he's so fine. George Harrison's my sweet lord. Listen, everybody who listens is going to have a different opinion about whether one was stolen from the other or not. The fact is the 1976 ruling in New York set a precedent for artists coming after other artists claiming that they had been uh, ripped off. Yeah, it's ironic, Jim, because the Beatles never made any bones about the fact that they were basically taking... American popular music and and br- bringing it back to America, reselling mm-hmm. it to America. I mean, they, they they openly said that we borrowed heavily from Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly and Little Richard, and we're re- rewriting our own versions. And well, of, and of made a lot songs. of money for those guys when they did direct covers. Absolutely, this tradition also extends back heavily in the blues. When when you think about blues music, it is essentially an oral tradition. It is essentially a tradition that is passed down generation to generation. It's a morass in terms of determining exactly who wrote what and when, who can claim copyright, who can claim that they've been infringed or plagiarized. However, as 
white musicians started covering poor black musicians' music <laughs> and started making a lot of money off it, a whole new element came into it, the big bucks. A classic example is uh, John Lee Hooker's Boogie Chillin', which ended up getting ZZ Top in a bit of trouble in the 70s. Uh, they did a song called LaGrange, which was a huge, huge hit for them. And John Lee Hooker and Bernard Bestman, his collaborator, sued ZZ Top over the performance of LaGrange, uh, hoping to win uh, copyright infringement royalties. When you listen to the songs, there is a distinct similarity between the two of them. Yeah, my mama, she didn't love me. She had to stay out all night long. Oh, Lord. Now, it's clear to me from that that uh, there's very little difference there. But I talked to Hooker about 20 years ago about that song. He wrote it in 1949. It was a huge regional hit for him. In fact, it sold millions of copies throughout the South. But even he said that that riff was in the air. It was around. It was a part of the blues lexicon. He took it, put his own personal stamp on it. Later on, you can hear it in a song like Slim Harpo's Shake Your Hips. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. around everywhere in the blues lexicon. ZZ Top were huge fans of the blues. They interpreted it in their own way, even down to that sort of mumbled vocal that Hooker uh, put over the top of it. So what happened here is the plaintiffs in this case released the song as a sound recording but did not file copyright registration for the work. As a result, nobody could sue them for copyright infringement for later performing the work and it became part of what is known as public domain and therefore was fair game for anybody later on to interpret it as they see fit. Mm. So despite the similarity of the two compositions, Hooker had no stake in the song in terms of being able to collect copyright royalties on it. Now we enter into this uh, new area of hip-hop music, a relatively new area of hip-hop music, and its version of what the blues musicians were doing. Hip-hop, in fact, is using modern technology to do essentially the same thing, which is to recycle music that inspired these artists and use it and recontextualize it as part of their records. We've talked at length in the show, Jim, about the Bismarcky case in the early 90s, mm-hmm. where the judge famously issued the statement, Thou shalt not steal, in proclaiming Bismarcky guilty, guilty, guilty for ripping off three seconds of right. a Gilbert O'Sullivan song. He threw the book at Bismarcky, basically said, even a three-second sample is going to cost you dearly. That's stealing. You can't do it. You pull the record off the shelves. Bismarcky's career effectively uh, killed. That's the most famous example, but there were a number of cases that have set bad precedents where clearly you had judges who just did not understand what sampling was. Another one in Bridgeport Music versus Dimension Films, where, where you know, just get a license or do not sample. Mm-hmm. That, that was the judge's ruling. And it's like, yeah, but it's not that simple. If you're just taking a little snippet of a snare drum, how can you say that that's copyright infringement? It's just, it's just a sound. Well, it's absurd. And I think uh, there's no sense here of uh, harmonics, theme, melody, 
development of new ideas. There's just an incredible misunderstanding of what this art form is all about. Uh, A classic example of this occurred in the late 90s when the Ohio Players Publishers sued the Notorious B.I.G. for the title track from his album, Ready to Die. There were numerous samples on that record, but there was a six-second sample of an Ohio Players song called Singing in the Morning, which was not cleared by uh, Biggie's record company and executive producer Puff Daddy. And as a result, the Ohio Players publishers won a $4 million settlement <laughs> for that six-second six settlement. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So it's an example of how badly misinterpreted this art form has been in our court system. And it has made it absolutely prohibitive for artists to sample anything and try to recontextualize it and make new music out of it, even though this is a tradition that stretches back centuries. There you have it, the Ohio players singing in the rain and Biggie Smalls is ready to die. I mean, identical. You can't tell those two tunes apart, right? (laughs) But, Greg, as silly as that case was, I think everybody who's ever looked at this business of copyright infringement has to agree that the most absurd case on the books involves John Fogarty, who was literally sued for imitating himself, (laughs) imitating the John Fogarty sound. John Fogarty, you were not allowed to do that. The attorney who represented Fogarty in that case and who's done some other important work in the realm of copyright infringement is Ken Seidel of Los Angeles. Ken, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. How did you begin the case? Uh, Did Fogarty approach you? Had had you been his attorney for a while? How How did it begin with you and John? Uh, I had represented John for years. Actually, John came to our for- the former law firm that I was with for tax advice. And this goes back to the founding of Credence and their relationship with Fantasy Records. John went over to Saul Zance's office. Saul Zance was the principal of Fantasy Records, and uh, they got signed to a contract. And I've heard this testimony from all these guys of how uh, Saul commented that, well, their contracts didn't provide much in the way of royalties, but when they were successful, he would give them a bigger piece, tear up their contracts and give them a bigger piece of the pie. I think somebody may have heard that story before. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So they went to Saul and uh, said, well, you remember that restaurant, that dark restaurant when we uh, signed this contract? Well, you know, we're successful. Would you tear up the contract? and give us a bigger piece of the pie like you promised. And Saul, as it's reported, said, well, you know, I'm not going to do that, but why don't you guys go back in the recording studio and record some records? Finally, Saul says, okay, uh, i tell you what, I'm not going to give you a raise, but what I will do is I'm going to introduce you to some people who will put you into an offshore tax plan, and it will net you the same thing after taxes, as if I had given you a raise in royalties. And so all the guys were very happy. They thought this was great. Well, to make a long story short, this uh, offshore tax plan kind of fell apart. 
I was introduced to John because the tax lawyers at our firm thought that this was negligent. That started a lengthy litigation process where, to make a long story short, we got a multi-million dollar verdict, and basically this inspired John to resume his recording career. He went. Uh, he was now under contract to Warner Brothers and went in and did the Center Field album. John still felt that this all this trouble he had was Saul Zantz and Fantasy Records' fault. I don't think Fantasy Records would ever have sued John for copyright infringement, except for the other songs that John put on the album. One of the songs was a song called Zantz Can't Dance. <laughs> yeah. And the lyrics of the song were, Zantz can't dance, but he'll steal your money, watch him or he'll rob you blind. Saul filed a slander action against John for these two songs, and I guess he figured while he was at it, he'd sue John for <laughs> copyright infringement. Now, give, give us an inside look at a case like this. How long, I mean, this, this case was not resolved very quickly. It took a while to resolve. It, it, it takes years to get these things resolved, doesn't it? it? It does, and even though it's in federal court, which moves quicker than state court, it it was about a five-year stretch. What was what was your primary, uh, you know, defense in this case? Um, was it that John, you, an artist, can't uh, rip himself off, or was it that the two songs aren't very similar at all? Or uh, how did you defend uh, Fogarty? Well, I had had one other big copyright infringement uh, case, music case for Dolly Parton, that was involving the song "Working Nine to Five. and I so I had experts that I had used. I had Harold Barlow, who was kind of the dean of, of musicologists, and uh, when he was cross-examined, uh, his his line was, "Well, yeah, there's all these notes that are the same, but would you say that therapist and the rapist are the same words? You know, even mm-hmm. though it's the same letters, just a couple of letters, yeah." And so I, and I, I must say, uh, I'm not a musicologist, I'm not really a music person, but as a litigator, the way these, these guys analyze these songs puts popular songwriters at risk because, as, as Harold would say, well, John only has three notes in his songs, yeah. so they're bound to bump up against each other a lot. <laughs> right. um, John, like Dolly, does not read or write uh, music. John had... Would at the end of each day would have a tape that he'd turn on and just play whatever he was doing for that day. Uh, when we went to trial, we had his brother Bob go through boxes of these tapes and find the actual time when he was strumming on the guitar and came up with the guitar riff uh, that starts out that old man down the road. Da, da, dun, dun, dun. And it's really, it, the hair on the back of your head almost stands up when you hear it because you are there at the moment of creation. And I guess you could still argue that he, he was subconsciously remembering his other song. But I think when you're listening to him fiddling around on the guitar and doing a little of this and a little of that, and all of a sudden he hits these notes, you realize that he was creating it originally. And the fact that the notes are similar, uh, if you can prove that they were independently created, uh, it's not copyright infringement. So that was kind of our argument. This is just his style and we could put on direct evidence, if you will, of when he created it, and it wasn't by copying his old song.
recap for us, uh, Ken, how, how both the Fogarty and the Dolly Parton cases ended? Well, they were both jury verdicts in our favor, defense verdicts. But after all the expert testimony in each of the cases, both of the juries, when I talked to them, said, you know, we just didn't think the song sounded the same. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so even though they got these instructions about subconscious copying and had expert testimony saying how similar they were, they just kind of shrugged their shoulders and said, you know, they just didn't sound that much the same to us. Well, you've been looking at this issue and this law for, for a long time now, uh, since those two famous cases. Is legally, uh, is there a problem with copyright law? Is it broken? Is it too easy to file these lawsuits? The risk is there, uh, although I think that oftentimes the juries have more intelligence than the law. They just kind of cut <laughs> through it. As a general rule, by definition, if somebody gets sued for uh, a song, it's because they're a successful songwriter and it's a successful song. So even though you've got George Harrison, uh, you know, sitting there and somebody showing you that the first 28 notes of My Sweet Lord are, are the same as He's So Fine, Harrison can look you right in the eye and say, I didn't, you know, I didn't know of that, I didn't think of it, and I didn't copy. And it was because of that principle that this subconscious copying came up, which I think is really stupid because copying by definition, is a conscious activity. How can you subconsciously copy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it is absurd, and I think also when you talk about pop music, uh, there's an incredibly long tradition of, of this sort of thing where successful songs are mimicked by other songs uh, because of that success but aren't exactly the same song. I mean, you, you think about uh, in Motown, when they had a big hit, uh, the next four or five artists would cut songs in a very similar style, and they would have a similar beat and a similar note pattern. And, and I think that's a great example of what Fogarty was doing. I mean, you know, he's being accused of ripping off himself, the artist ripping off himself. But but the problem here was that there were separate publishing companies. And right. as a result, he gets sued. It, that just seems absurd. Like some somebody in a position of power should say, wait a minute, that's just wrong. Well, and there's another kind of dimension to this. And I'm not familiar with how European copyright compares, but Europeans have a much more, their whole concept of droit morale and how these rights do not belong to the copyright owner, but rather to the creator. In other words, Fogarty is the creator of both of these songs, and it's true that fantasy owns the copyright, but it just doesn't seem right morally. Yeah. The other thing that I think is relevant, particularly in artists like Fogarty, is no consideration is given to, shall we say, the lyrics or the, the, the message of the song. And even though the building blocks are the same, uh, the songs really are quite different, no matter how many notes you might have that are uh, similar. It does seem like the analysis um, of the songs should take more into account than, than just the uh, matching up of the notes. Uh, we only have like seven notes in, in, a, in, a, in our music and in popular music, as you say, there's only so much of it that's pleasant to the ear. So people aren't going to just go off and do something that's totally different. They do something that's been heard before because the listeners like it. Right. That was great uh, stuff, uh, Ken. We really appreciate you uh, lending some insight into our investigation of, of copyright law. We appreciate you being on Sound Opinions. Okay. Thank you very much. If you'd like to make a comment on Sound Opinions or accuse us of ripping off something you said once, call our hotline, 888-859-1800, or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. 
We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with a review of the new record from Heartless Bastards. And then it's Greg's turn to add a track to the Desert Island Jukebox. Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. That is a song called The Mountain, which is the title track from the third album by the band Heartless Bastards. Greg, the singer, guitarist, and principal songwriter of the band, Erica Wennerstrom, is the only one left from when the group first came together in Dayton, Ohio. She's the heart and soul of Heartless Bastards, who got their first big break early on when they uh, played a gig with the Black Keys, who were fans of theirs, helped them get signed to the cool indie underground blues label Fat Possum, began winning some positive notes for their first two records, but this is the album that is uh, poised to break them huge nationwide. This one was produced by Mike McCarthy, who's best known for working with Spoon and also, and you will know us by the Trail of Dead, both Austin bands. Erica has moved to Austin, has a new rhythm section for this third album by Heartless Bastards, The Mountain, and a more polished sound than in the past. Dayton, of course, like the whole Ohio scene, is known for that kind of lo-fi garage rock, you know, the home of Guided by Voices, right? But this album is a lot cleaner. It's a lot more focused. It's a lot more polished. This is the one that's going to break Wennerstrom, who's now 30-something nationwide. That's how they're positioning it. Let's hear a track from this album, and we'll come back and we'll give our opinions on it. This is a song called Out at Sea by Heartless Bastards from The Mountain on Sound Opinions. Packed up and head to the city of light To escape from pain and for thrills I walked around through the bottom of the ocean I took a deep breath and drank through my gills And now I'm searching for a mystery to hold on to I've been sinking underneath the paper skies I drew No rip, another tear, it all divides And I'm drowning in I'm drowning in frustration 
That's Out at Sea from the Heartless Bastards on Sound Opinions, the third album from that band called The Mountain. What a voice. Erica Wennerstrom. It sounds like it belongs on a scratchy old 78 RPM blues record. <laughs> a really uh, a blast from the past. A, a deep sound, a sound that sounds wiser and deeper and more profound than her years. Where she got that voice, I have no idea, but I think it's a marvelous instrument, one of the most distinctive in, in rock music today. First couple of records uh, were typecast as blues records or, or blues rock, but I think there's a lot of country, mountain soul vibe in that voice as well. And I think she brings out some more textures in this music and on this record than she ever did before. As you said, Jim, a little bit more elaborately produced. She self-produced her first two albums. Mm-hmm. Mike McCarthy, who has done some great work with uh, bands like Spoon, is uh, producing here, and we bring in some stringed instruments and some more texture to that voice. You got mandolin, you got banjo, yeah. And the backstory to this uh, record is that she broke up with her longtime boyfriend and bass player in the original Heartless Bastards uh, after nearly 10 years, and basically had to leave town. It just had to had to get out of Ohio, change locations, and this album is all about a woman going out on her own again and finding a new life, starting anew, basically starting fresh. Her band, her boyfriend, her life is changing, her location, her geography, mm-hmm. everything about about her life was uh, turned upside down. Well, in she the admits last she's of guilty of a little bit of ADD, attention deficit disorder, <laughs> and she had to lock herself in a house to recover from this uh, relationship, but also to force herself to write because she can she can get distracted too easily. Well, she came out with some great songs, and I think the the vibe on this record that I'm thinking of out at sea. Uh, obviously, there's there, there's these images of drowning and darkness of being lost. I think about somebody wandering through a forest just at dusk, just when it's about to turn dark, and you're wandering into this new area and you're not really sure where you're going. You're a little bit lost. There's a trancy, almost hypnotic, meditative quality about this music that's, uh, that's also in her voice that I think really comes through in a persuasive manner. I think it's the best album the Heartless Bastards have, have made. I think uh, no small debt due to Mike McCarthy's mm-hmm. production. Uh, but Winterstrom's voice is truly deserving of the settings that he gives her on this record and, and the new textures. And for me, on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale, it is a buy it record. Greg, I wish I could be as enthusiastic as you. I have to say it's a burn-it record for me. I love Heartless Bastards when they really get things revved up and start moving. There is a, a great sense in that opening track, The Mountain, of Crazy Horse, Neil Young. You know, that stomp, especially with this new rhythm section, kicking behind her voice and her revving up the guitar. It's, uh, it's really great Crazy Horse garage rock, roots rock. However... You slow things down, be so happy, and uh, that song, Wide Awake, and it's all the banjo and the mandolin and the strings come in. It's like, wow, ballads are not her mode. I this love that really, stuff, though. I, you know, to me, I was hearing, like, Chris Robinson of the Black Crows oh. trying to do, <laughs> you know, something from the Oh Brother, Where Art Thou soundtrack or something. <laughs> like, this was bad. I really love half this album. If it was an EP, it would be a buy it. But as it is, I got to go with a burn it. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. Remember, we were shipwrecked together. 
As often as possible here on Sound Opinions, Greg or I like to take a trip to the desert island, pop a quarter in the jukebox, and play a track that we cannot live without. Mr. Cott, it's your turn. Well, thank you, Jim. My thoughts turn as we near the date of February 3rd to the 50th anniversary of the death of one Charles Harden Holly of Lubbock, Texas. Mm. 50th anniversary on February 3rd, 1959, at the age of 22, Buddy Holly died in a plane crash along with J.P. Big Bopper Richardson, Richie Valens, and the pilot of that plane on his way to a gig in Fargo, North Dakota. He had just played in Clear Lake, Iowa. Obviously, a momentous date for rock and roll inspired the song American Pie by Don McLean years later. But more importantly, the legacy left behind by Buddy Holly. In only three short years, he uh, created, I think, a blueprint for rock and roll. I think when you think about the two guitar, bass, drums band, the model for that more than any single rock and roll band was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. Mm. Buddy Holly on guitar, Nicky Sullivan on rhythm guitar, Jerry Allison on drums, and Joe Malden on bass. And the four of them were really only together for a little more than a year, recording these amazing singles out of Clovis, New Mexico, with Norman Petty as the producer. And when you think about forward-looking music, none more forward-looking than some of those singles that Buddy Holly created. Uh, Not just Peggy Sue and That'll Be the Day and Oh Boy. Obviously, those are the iconic singles, the ones that everybody knows about. But I think some of the lesser-known stuff especially was incredibly influential. And the song I want to play... I think, is really the secret history of that mid-60s movement when those British invasion rock and roll bands started becoming even more influenced by the folk music and the the California singer-songwriter stuff and bringing it into their records, notably the Beatles with a record like Rubber Soul. I think there is no Rubber Soul without this particular song from Buddy Holly. And what is really amazing about it was that the song that I'm about to play was never officially released until after Holly's death, and then only as a B-side. But I think it became one of the most influential pieces of music he ever recorded. And and what it is, is Holly stripping back his sound, playing just an acoustic guitar. You've got Joe Malden on upright bass, and you've got Allison playing a very sparse drum kit. In fact, what you hear primarily on this song is him brushing a cymbal. So it's an incredibly intimate, stripped-down production. And I think when you hear this song, you hear the roots of Norwegian Wood or You've Got to Hide Your Love Away Mm. by John Lennon, you know, eight, nine years later. The name of the song is Well All Right, and it's Buddy Holly and the Crickets on Sound Opinions. Well, all right, so I'm being foolish. Well, all right, let people know About the dreams and wishes you wish In the night when Well, all right, well, all right We'll live and love with all our might Well, all right, well, all right Our lifetime love will be all right So I'm going steady It's all right when people say That those foolish kids can't be ready For the love that comes their way Well, all right, well, all right We will live and love 
Buddy Holly's Well All Right, my Desert Island jukebox pick for this week. Uh, one of the great songs from the Buddy Holly canon. A nice one, Greg. Thank you, Jim. Next week, we've got some more great music, archival music, a modern-day record label, digging deep and finding some of the most obscure and beautiful music you've never heard and bringing it to light for all of us to enjoy. That's the Numero Group out of Chicago, and we're going to investigate their treasures. As always, Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn, with executive production, fearless leadership, from Tori Southside Malatia, a man who, as far as we know, has never infringed on anyone's copyright. Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi guys, it's uh, Alan calling from Los Angeles, listening to you on podcast. And I'm going to tell you that right now, I know I am agreeing with Mr. DeRogatis, in advance of his terrible and scathing review for Working on a Dream by Bruce Springsteen. There is no way that he will let this one off the hook. Mr. Cott, there is no way you will let this one off the hook. This represents the nadir of a career, I would say, except I have a feeling that Bruce is actually in a tube somewhere, some hyperbaric chamber, and replaced by robo-Bruce that cranks out by-the-numbers, working-class, mid-tempo, anthemic songs since just at the end of The Rising. Working on a Dream is atrocious. And as evidenced by the interminably bad Outlaw Pete. should be your answering machine message that you play when people call you that you hate. It should be music that you play for telemarketers. I hope you didn't like it as much as I hate it. Thank you. Hey guys, this is Liz from Chicago. I just got through listening to your show with the Hold Steady and I just wanted to say it was fantastic just to hear those guys on a really raw acoustic level. And the night with the fight. That butterfly knife was the first night she talked to that townie she liked. She gave him a ride to some kid's house in Cleveland. He stayed there for two weeks, but the cops finally found him. He didn't seem that different, except for the blood on his jacket. They're just a fantastic band, so it's really nice to hear them get airplay, and the interview was really awesome as well. Thanks so much. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Chiana from Chicago, Illinois. And I just finished listening to your show with the Hold Steady. And your review of Andrew Bird struck a note with me. I I don't know. It kind of feels like you almost want him or assume that he wants to 
break into this pop scene, and I just can't see it. He's a very intelligent man with this great ear for composition, and maybe that's also just me. But I also think that if he made his music any more obtuse, he would be completely uninteresting. And I don't think I'd want that, because I enjoy being one of those skinny teenage girls with glasses going to see his show. Anyways, uh, it's a great show, and I look forward to hearing more of it. Thank you. Hi, my name is Bill Shun. I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. I listen to the show either on WBEZ or by podcast. I just could not uh, let pass the comment you made about Bono's column in the New York Times that it was the first time that a daily newspaper had given a column to a rock musician. Uh, the New York Times used to have a science column that was written by Brian May from Queen. I'm not sure that it lasted very long, but uh, Brian May was actually is a, a reasonably respected astrophysicist. In addition to a rock musician, he finished his Ph.D. in 2008 with a thesis on the radial velocities of the zodiacal dust cloud. <laughs> Just didn't want to let that pass uh, without comment and give Brian May the props that he is due. Thanks. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Give it to me one more time!